Our reading this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. But for you, continue in what you have learnt and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learnt it. And from your infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-given and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and teaching in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and in Jesus Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what is itching in their ears they want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Thanks, Kerry. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to see you all. If I haven't met you before, uh, my name's Ruben. Uh, and you may not know this about me, but I am a fan of the Australian comedy duo Hamish and Andy. Uh, and Hamish and Andy have a game they play called The Duping Game. And they get someone to call them up, and they have to tell them about some special thing that they own. And then Hamish and Andy have to work out whether the person really does own that and they're telling the truth, or whether the person is spinning a yarn and trying to dupe them. Uh, one person claimed to have one of Donald Bradman's bats. Uh, another person claimed to have this rare prop from a movie. And then there was the woman a few weeks ago, and she tried to tell Hamish and Andy that she had this small figurine from Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt. And the story was that her great-aunt had travelled to Egypt in the 1930s at the time that the tomb was being excavated, and she had somehow managed to just score this nice little metal statue of a pharaoh. Now, I mean, you might want that to be true, but it's a bit, it's a bit far-fetched, isn't it? It's too good to be true. Uh, and so Hamish and Andy said to her, look, there's, there's no way that this figurine isn't in the British Museum unless your aunt was some crazy grave robber. Um, you've got to be duping us. And the woman said, no, I've really got it. <laughs> and apparently she has this small figurine of a pharaoh and she's convinced that it's the real deal and personally, uh, I suspect that she's the one who might have been duped. <laughs> I suspect she's got something in her house that she thinks is priceless and it was probably just a tourist souvenir. But it can be hard to know what's real and what's not, can't it? And it can be hard to know what's true and what's not. 
And this morning we're going to ask these questions about the Bible. How do we know if the Bible is true? Is it possible that we've been duped? We think we're holding this priceless treasure and it's actually worthless. And that, that would be a horrible thing to discover, wouldn't it? Because as Christians and as a church here at Riverbank, we bank everything on the Bible. Everything. You've probably worked that out already this morning. We use the Bible to decide what's true and false. We preach from it. We study it. We obey it. And we bank our eternal destinies on it. We trust that it really does show us the way home to God. But should we? How do we know that this is actually God's Word? Is it reliable? Was it ever reliable? Maybe it was reliable once, but what about now? I mean, surely after all those years it's gotten polluted. And what about translations? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we, we've got all these slightly different Bibles in our hands that all seem to say slightly different things. Isn't that a sign that somewhere along the way something went wrong? Well, that's what we want to think about this morning. As we continue in our series of hot topics, and we're asking this morning, is my Bible really the Word of God? We're going to see three things today, and the first is this. Inspiration. Inspiration. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Well, we're saying that every word in the Bible was, was spoken, was written, was given by God himself. Inspired means these are God's words. And all of that rests on this one central truth, which is that God speaks. Our God is a God who speaks. We see that in the first chapter of the Bible, don't we? God speaks and, and the world leaps into existence at the sound of his voice. And then we see again and again God speaking to humans, guiding them and revealing himself to them. And then not only that, but we see that God commands his words to be written down so that people in the future could hear those words as well. That's, that's you and me, isn't it? Uh, so in Exodus 17, for example, God says to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Uh, and then in Acts 7, verse 38, Stephen says that Moses received living words to pass on to us. And the awesome thing is that just because you write God's words down doesn't mean that they're any less powerful, uh, any less true, any less useful. Psalm 119 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. Uh, and we read 2 Timothy 3 just before, and it says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. It says that they're useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but this doesn't really make sense. How can the Bible be God's words if it was written by humans? And that's a really good question, because the Bible really was written by real people. But they weren't people who just wrote whatever they wanted. They were inspired to write the very words of God. We, we sometimes talk about how I was inspired to write a book or inspired to write this song. But, but the inspiration of the Bible is something a lot more miraculous than that. Um, 2 Peter 
1 verse 21 makes this amazing statement. Listen to this. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, did you get that? They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God filled their hearts and their minds in such a way that every word that they wrote wasn't just their words, but it was actually His words. Um, or, or as we read in 2 Timothy 3 just before, it said, all Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. Like, like a musician blowing into a trumpet, making beautiful music. The Bible was breathed out by God. Let's just pause for a second and, and appreciate how amazing that is. The invisible God, the one who knows every single thing, has put words on a page so that you and I can get to know Him. In the Bible, God comes close to us and we discover that He wants to know us and He wants us to know Him. The Bible brings us joy. It brings us the joy of discovering how to be saved through faith in Jesus and the joy of finding truth in a world that seems to just be full of endless conflicting opinions and the joy of learning the best way to live. So inspiration, that's the first thing we're seeing today. The Bible isn't just words about God. The Bible is actually the words of God. But that's not the whole story, is it? It's not quite that simple, because sure, Moses might have written God's words down on a scroll like 3,000 years ago, but we don't have that scroll with us this morning, do we? And that brings us to the second thing we want to think about this morning, which is preservation. Inspiration, and now preservation. So, so let's say that I write something really wise in my notebook. Uh, for example, um, I like to eat muesli for breakfast. So preservation is when I pass those precious, profound words on to my son, uh, and then he passes them on to his grandkids, and so on and so on, like this precious family heirloom. Wow, great-granddad liked to eat muesli for breakfast. But here's the thing, like over time, wouldn't you expect that those words would get lost, or, or get faded, or that if they were copied, they'd be copied inaccurately and someone would make a mistake. I mean, we've all played Chinese Whispers, yep, and you know what happens in that game, that things change. So, how do I know that my Bible is still accurate and reliable? H haven't God's words become polluted over time? Which is a fair question, and <laughs> what I say next might sound like very bad news. Uh, we no longer have the original scrolls that Moses wrote on. In fact, we don't have any of the original manuscripts for any books of the Bible. Which is not surprising at all, because all ancient documents perish eventually. And in most cases, that's it. They're gone. They're lost forever, and we'll never know what the ancient Aztecs put on their shopping lists. But here's where things get exciting. Here's where we discover that the Bible is actually the most remarkable ancient document ever. Because from the beginning, 
the Old Testament scriptures were incredibly precious to God's people, the Jews. So precious that they carefully preserved them and copied them. I'm just going to put a slide up on here. I want to show you some of these manuscripts. We actually have thousands and thousands of copies of the Old Testament. We have far, far more copies of the Old Testament than any other document. And these copies weren't made by school kids. They were made by Jewish scribes. Uh, They were professional copyists. They worked meticulously. They cross-checked everything. They had all these rules and guidelines for the type of parchment and ink that you had to use and, and the spacing of the words and the columns. And they were deeply religious people. They really loved God's Word and they wanted to get it right. But maybe they could still have made mistakes, right? Well, I want you to imagine this. Let's say that uh, we we pick 50 people here this morning uh, and each of you get given the book of Exodus and you've got to go and copy it out. Copy the book of Exodus word for word. Now, chances are every single copy is going to have some mistakes in it, right? You know, some of you are going to leave the word and out of a sentence and someone else is going to misspell river as rover and and it's, it's... it's not going to be perfect, but that's, that's actually not going to stop us from knowing what the original said, is it? Because if we get all the copies together and 49 of them match, and then that one got that word wrong, we'll be able to pick it. And if you want to be a really sneaky scribe and there's just a chapter in Exodus that you don't like, so you're going to ditch it, well, good luck, because there are so many other copies that tell the truth. Okay, so so that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, once again, we have thousands of copies. Some of them are really old. Uh, There's a fragment from the Gospel of John that dates back to 125 AD, which is maybe 50 years after John actually wrote the original. And then there's this, the Codex Sinaiticus. It's a good one for a trivia night. It was written in about the 4th century AD. It's one of the earliest and the most complete manuscripts of the Bible. It's got the whole Greek New Testament and most of the Greek Old Testament. And and this is just such good news, really. Um, One scholar, Wayne Grudem, he says that for over 99% of the words of the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts said. What about the remaining less than 1%, well, it turns out that those words and phrases are really minor. There's, there's no big doctrine or issue that hangs on them. Uh, and sometimes you can see that for yourself in your Bible. It might give you a little footnote, uh, and it will show you like a variation or an uncertainty, and you'll see that they're not really big issues at all. So there you go. That's, that's preservation. Uh, and in one sense, it's quite incredible, isn't it? I mean, this, this Bible is unlike any other document in all of history. But but then again, maybe it's not that surprising, given that God's people treasured it as the very words of God, the source of eternal life and salvation. Of course you would copy that with religious care. And not only that, but wouldn't we expect that if the Bible really is God's words, 
then wouldn't God make sure that it was protected and preserved? I mean, do we really think that God is sitting up in heaven going, oh, darn it, I didn't think about the fact that that scroll wouldn't last 4,000 years. And Now what do I do? Are we surprised that the God who has kept our universe, our earth, spinning for thousands of years is capable of preserving, protecting some old documents? It's, it's His inspired eternal Word, remember. So, of course, we can trust Him to preserve it. And that's what's happened. Well, we're asking this morning, is my Bible really the Word of God? Uh, so far, we've looked at inspiration, that the Bible is actually the very words of God. And we've looked at preservation, that the Bible has been preserved and protected for thousands of years. But there's one last thing we need to consider before we finish, and that is translation. Inspiration, preservation, translation. Uh, Translation is where my great-great-great-great-grandkids don't speak English anymore. And so to enjoy this precious family heirloom that I've passed on to them, they have to change the words, I eat muesli, I like to eat muesli for breakfast, uh, from English into Mandarin, say. But... Isn't translation a problem when we come to the Bible? Uh, I mean, we might agree that the Hebrew Old Testament and, and the Greek New Testament is the inspired Word of God. But that's not what we're reading from this morning, is it? We're reading an English translation. In fact, there's probably lots of different English translations in the room today. Maybe you've had this experience, you're sitting in a small group of people, you're reading the Bible together, and everyone's reading a different translation. And you start to find yourself wondering, how can all of these be true when they're all different? And look, maybe the, maybe the conclusion of the sermon is, all growth groups are cancelled for the rest of the year, and we're running Hebrew and Greek classes instead. Now, that's going to make for a really fun youth ministry, isn't it? So, so why are there so many... Translations, and can we trust them? Wouldn't it be way better if we had one English translation, the the right one? Well, it's a nice idea, but translation isn't quite that simple. In fact, it's really complex, and, and translators have to make decisions constantly. So, like, sometimes there just isn't a single equivalent word between two languages. Um, so if, if Mandarin doesn't have a word for muesli, how am I going to translate that? Is it okay to say a mix of oats and fruit? Should you translate the thought behind the word, uh, even though that translation is not quite as literal now? Or should you just keep it as literal as you can, translate the exact word, and then, you know, don't worry so much if the modern readers don't actually know what that means? Let me give you a, a funny example from the Bible. Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul tells us to put on bowels of mercies. Uh, That's what the King James Version says. It's it's a literal translation of the Greek word uh, meaning bowels or intestines. But some other translators felt that bowels of mercies didn't make a lot of sense in English. And so uh, the NASB translation chose heart of compassion. Uh, The NIV simply says compassion. Which one is right? Well, that's the challenge of doing translation. The important question is which one best helps us to understand the meaning of the original? 
Translation is also complicated because language is always changing. Uh, a good English translation that made sense 100 years ago might not make much sense anymore. Uh, if I said to you, uh, the people were joyful and gay, that may not mean the same thing today that it meant back then. We might think of a different meaning. So, we, you know, a translation is not going to be much help if, if we need a translation for the translation, right? And all of those reasons are why we don't have one definitive translation of the Bible in English. What we do have are hundreds of very skillful translators around the world and they're constantly working to come up with the most accurate translation for each language. And they're always trying to walk this fine line between being as literal and accurate as possible and still making sure that that translation is readable and understandable. So, accuracy and readability, that is, that's the sweet spot, that's the goal in translation. And, and look, there's no doubt that some translations are better than others. Some are really excellent. Um, our churches have studied and recommended the NIV and the ESV. They're really great translations. Others are really bad, uh, like the New World Translation. Uh, it's used by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's been deliberately changed to hide verses that might point to Jesus being divine. And then there are paraphrases. Uh, and paraphrases are not translations at all. Um, you might have heard of, of The Message, for example, by Eugene Peterson. That can be really helpful, uh, as long as we understand that this is not a careful translation of every word from the original. This is, this is a retelling, a, a retelling of the Bible in someone else's words. It's their, their spin on it. Okay. Where does all this talk about translations leave us? Let, let me just make a few quick comments to pull this together. First of all, translations are not a hiccup in God's plan. Uh, he's the one who made all the different languages back in Babel. And he's the one who told us to take the gospel to all nations, yeah? People from every tribe and tongue. Second, strictly speaking, we shouldn't say that any one translation is inspired. It's a translation of God's inspired words, but it's not the inspired words themselves. Which, which warns us, I think, against being blindly devoted to just one um, English translation, because our ultimate allegiance is, is to the eternal inspired word of God as it was originally written. But third, that doesn't mean that a translation cannot be the true and authoritative Word of God. Insofar as a translation helps us to accurately understand the original, it really is the true Word of God. Fourth, we don't need to be worried that there are so many different translations out there. It's not a sign that we have lost the truth. Actually, they all help us understand God's Word more clearly, more accurately. So rather than letting the translation thing cause arguments among us, they should really unite us in our pursuit of the truth. Fifth, this is good news, you don't need Greek and Hebrew in order to understand God's Word. Don't get freaked out by those pastors who go, well, 
In the Greek, it says this, but you guys wouldn't get that because you're dummies. You know, you, you hear preachers like that, and it's a power play, and it makes you feel like, oh, I can't, I can't read the Bible for myself. But, but if you want to study God's Word carefully, you can do an excellent job with two or three translations open in front of you. You know, you pick one that's a bit more literal, the ESV maybe, one that's a bit more readable, the NIV. Compare them. You can, you can get so far with that. But sixth, we do need some people who understand the original languages. Uh, and that's why pastors in our churches have to go to Bible college and study a bit of Greek and Hebrew. Uh, now, personally, my language skills are so rusty, um, but I've got just enough knowledge about to read what the smart people say, what the language scholars say, and then they can kind of help me understand what's going on behind the scenes. But I, I couldn't do it on my own. We, we really should, I think, praise God for all these hard-working translators who have given us such excellent Bibles. I'm so glad that we don't just get up here and read some Latin words on a Sunday morning and then go, hmm, I hope that, I hope that does something. And maybe, maybe one day you'll be a translator yourself. Uh, maybe you will translate the Bible into a language for people who don't yet have it. Wouldn't that be an awesome way to do mission work and spread the gospel? Okay, we've been asking the question, is my Bible really the Word of God? Can, it, can we trust it? Or have we been duped? We've looked at inspiration. The Bible is actually the very words of God. We've looked at preservation. The Bible has been wonderfully preserved over thousands of years. And we've looked at translation. The Bible can be accurately translated into all languages. Because God wants all nations to hear his word and be saved. And this is such good news. What a, what a blessing that we can have complete confidence in the Bible. It really is the word of God written for us. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's enough to know that the Bible is true. We also need to feel that it's true. A woman, um, she sat behind her fruit and veggie stand, and whenever there were no customers, uh, she would sit there and read from her Bible. It, it was her most treasured possession. And one day, one of her customers said to her, what's, what's that book that you're reading all the time? And she said, oh, it's the Bible. It's, it's the Word of God. And he said, well, how do you know it's the Word of God? Who told you that? He asked. God himself told me. Really? Did he talk to you personally? And at first the woman felt embarrassed to have to try and explain that the Bible was the Word of God. But then she, then she looked up at the sky and she pointed to the sun. And she said, Sir, can you prove to me that that is the sun? Sure, that's easy, the man replied. The best proof is that it gives me light and warmth. And she said, that's exactly right. And the proof that the Bible is truly God's word is that it gives me inward light and warmth. Now, I wonder if that's true for you in your experience. It certainly is for me and for millions of other people who have taken the time to crack a Bible open and read it for themselves. Uh, a ship once sank in a, in a violent storm and then a few days later um, washed up on shore. They found some parts of the wreck and... Um, some of a sailor's um, items of clothing. 
And inside the jacket was found a New Testament Bible. Uh, and, and on the first page of that Bible, the sailor's name was written. Uh, and then underneath it, he had written these words. Read the first time at my sister Lotta's request. Read the second time because of fear of God's judgment. Read the third time and all the other times because of love towards my Saviour, Jesus Christ. I think the best example of a man who loved God's Word is found in Psalm 119. You know, the monster psalm. He treasures God's Word. Verse 72, he says, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. He trusts God's word. Verse 114. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. He studies God's word. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. He he meditates on God's word. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. He obeys God's word. Verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And he shares God's word. Verse 172, may my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. Well, I I hope that each of us will grow to treasure the Bible more and more. To appreciate the the marvellous, miraculous reality that we actually hold the very words of God in our hands today. Let's pray together and thank God for the Bible. Thank you, Lord God, that you speak to us with love so that we can know you, so that we can be saved so that we can learn about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for sinners like us, sinners who deserve hell, but instead are offered eternal life, eternal love in your presence forever. How amazing, Lord, that we know this, and we only know it because of the Bible. And we thank you that you have inspired it, that it's your word. We thank you that you have preserved it like no other document that exists. And we thank you that it has been translated into our language, into modern English, so that we can crack it open at any time and hear you speak straight into our lives and our hearts. We thank you so much, Lord, for speaking to us. What a wonderful expression of your love. Thank you for this beautiful love letter. Thank you for this lifeline. Thank you, God, for this reassurance that you are real, And you really do want to know us and save us. We give you the praise and the glory for your word. Amen.